Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate right now to the show notes for this episode, where you will find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. I'm joined today by Dan Huger, Acton's librarian and a research associate and contributing editor to the Acton Institute, Emily Zanotti. This week, we'll discuss the incentives surrounding monetization of Twitter engagement, and we'll wrap up the Catholic Church's synod on synodality. But first, let's go to Virginia and Charlottesville, Virginia, to be specific. Charlottesville is where this statue of Robert E. Lee used to stand. You may remember it as a center point of the Unite the Right rally, which happened relatively early on in the Trump administration. Um, I, of course, make the reference to Trump there because it was Donald Trump who it's from this that we get the um, there are very good people on both sides of this, again, making references here to white nationalists and counter protesters of all of that. So. This had become a center focus of both that rally and then the aftermath. The statue had recently been taken down, and it was melted down in a 2,250-degree furnace. And we know this because the Washington Post was given exclusive access to watch this process happen. So one thing that I think we know about this is – They definitely wanted the attention around this thing being melted down. This was not very – it's one of those we're pretending to make it look like it was secretive and surreptitious, but here's the Washington Post to document it for a feature article with like autoplay video. It really made it look like they were – Throwing the ring into Mordor. Yes. I mean, it like the photos. Uh, and we'll, we'll put a link to that Washington Post piece in the show notes, but I'll give you a little piece of it um, with the, uh, the location somewhere in the U.S. South. I feel like I'm in, in an episode of The X-Files. It was a choice to melt down Robert E. Lee, but it would have been a choice to keep him intact, too. That might go down as one of my least favorite leads of any story I've read of this year. So the statue of the Confederate general that once stood in Charlottesville and that once prompted the deadly Unite the Right rally in 2017 was now being cut into fragments and dropped into a furnace, dissolving into a sludge of glowing bronze. Six years ago, groups with ties to the Confederacy had sued to stop the monument from being taken down. Torch-bearing white nationalists descended on the Virginia college town to protest its removal, and one man drove his car through a crowd of counter-protesters, killing 32-year-old Heather Heyer and injuring 35 others. The statue's defenders more recently sought to block the city from handing Lee over to Charlottesville's Black History Museum, which proposed a plan to repurpose the metal. In a lawsuit, those plaintiffs suggested the century-old monument should remain intact or be turned into Civil War-style cannons. But on Saturday, the museum went ahead with its plan in secret, quote-unquote in secret, at this small southern foundry outside Virginia in a town and state the Washington Post agreed not to name because of participants' fears of violence. So what I noticed almost immediately after this is a reoccurrence of a dialogue that seems to keep happening every time... There is a story about either names of military bases or uh, a statue of Robert E. Lee or someone like this that becomes prominent where you get these defenders, particularly of the legacy of Robert E. Lee. You get various forms of this. Some point out his military accomplishments. He graduated high in his class at West Point, et cetera, et cetera. Others, particularly within the Christian community, will point out that he was allegedly a devout Christian. Um, I always feel the need to, you know, reference the surrealist comedy account on uh, Twitter and to borrow uh, one of his tweets to adapt it here. Uh, just a reminder that you do not 
under any circumstances, gotta hand it to Robert E. Lee. But this has now, of course, become the focus of a conversation about allegedly wiping the names of these people from the history books, even though I'm pretty sure all the history books still mention the Confederacy and still mention Robert E. Lee. The question just becomes, is it appropriate to have monuments built to people who led a rebellion against this country in order to primarily protect, and yes, sorry to you people out there who do not like this narrative, but it is the correct one, to protect slavery. So, Dan, I'll, I'll throw it to you. Is this melting down of this monument to Robert E. Lee, is this appropriate, do you think? I think it's very strange. So we can have a debate about the appropriateness of whether or not you should have certain figures celebrated, immoral, uh, uh, memorialized, this sort of thing. In Grand Rapids, we have a, a box, a uh, you know, a sort of um, power box on the street that has Angela Davis on it, despite the fact that she was an apologist for the East German communist regime and a terrorist herself. Um, this is something the city of Grand Rapids chooses to celebrate as a sort of series of, of uh, murals about, you know, sort of uh, influential women in history. Um, you know, that's, that's a choice that the city of Grand Rapids has made. And for many, many years, the city of Charlottesville made the choice to maintain this statue and now to take it down. I, I want to make – to interject real quick to make one point. Um, the Angela Davis thing is, is funnily enough, the, the school that my kids were at in Chicago before we moved to Grand Rapids – uh, I remember walking through shortly after, I believe, Black History Month, and there was one of the doors of the classrooms had a quote on it from Angela Davis. And I brought up to the principal, like, not sure that that's the most appropriate person to be quoting. And this was very similar to a previous experience I'd had at a public school in Chicago where I, I was playing in the band of a church at the time that had this – uh, it was like, you know, primary grades. So like, you know, second, third graders had all these quotes on a board under the, the banner of celebrating the value of you. And I'm reading the quotes and it's everyone you'd expect, Eleanor Roosevelt and Martin Luther King. And then I get to one by Fidel Castro and one by Mao Zedong, who, of course, together murdered millions of individual yous. And in both cases, what I found out was they really had no idea who these people were. They, they had no real understanding of who Angela Davis or Mao Zedong or even really Fidel Castro were. And I find often in those cases it's ignorance rather than a belief that these are people to be celebrated. I don't know the background of the Grand Rapids one as much. But I just – you know, in, in comparison between the two, I don't think anybody is very – is clueless in any way about what Robert E. Lee, who he was or what he did. I think there are a lot of people who are though. If you talk to folks of an older generation in the American South, they are. There was a concerted effort after the failure of Reconstruction to socialize, to educate, to preserve aspects of Southern resistance that included whitewashing the history of these figures. And there are many people that were taught that history and who passed that history onto their children. Um, so I think I think I think you have just as many, you know, we live in the 21st century. Everyone can look up the Wikipedia entry for Robert E. Lee or Angela Davis or Fidel Castro or Mao Zedong or anybody they would like. Um, the information is not the problem. The socialization is different. Um, what these symbols mean to people are different. Um, Milan Kundura used to say that the struggle of man against power is the struggle of memory against forgetting. Um, when we are talking about these monuments, we're not talking about these people. We're talking about memories, and these memories have cultural context, which is why, to bring us back to the strangeness of this, this is very strange. Because you have this dramatic sort of Sauron ring of power destruction sort of thing that Emily references. This is not about not celebrating Robert E. Lee. This is about 
destroyed Robert E. Lee. Now, Robert E. Lee has been dead and gone for a long time and has since gone to judgment and has answered for his crimes. But this is different. The fact that you would do this sort of, you know, you're not just demolishing an icon that you believe to be abhorrent, but you're erecting a new one in this video that is now, you know, you know, the viral, you know, the viral video tweet rather than the statue erected in the town square is a sort of counter to it. It strikes me as very strange, and I think it is very tied up, not just into the historical legacy of the Confederacy, the legacy of General Lee, but what happened in Charlottesville in 2016. And it's about the politics of today just as much, if not more, than about the politics of, you know, 19th century Reconstruction and its aftermath. Yeah, I I don't have a particular problem with it, your analysis there, and it's about the politics of today. I just think that the politics of today, if they are indicating that they think that it is appropriate to remove statues memorializing people who led a rebellion against this country in the name of protecting chattel slavery, I just don't have that much of a problem with that. Yeah, but they've been doing that for decades. They have not been taking them to surreptitious locations and creating a sort of pornographic meltdown. I shot. agree with you. The theater of all of this is is bizarre and not something that I'm particularly fond of. But let's get Emily in here. Part of it is that you have to remember. Sorry, my daughter's crying. Um, part of it is that you have to remember that some of these statues, including the one in Charlottesville, did not go up just to honor Robert E. Lee. These didn't go up in the 1890s. They went up in the 1920s. And the reason that they did with Reconstruction was starting to push um, integration into cities. And they wanted to send a message about being welcome and unwelcome. Um, and so we have Lee Victory Parkway here in Nashville that everyone's always trying to rename. Lee didn't have a victory here in Nashville. Um, the Confederacy had a sound defeat. Um, very early on, they didn't really put up a fight. And then the union came in and made Nashville its headquarters for its Southern campaign. So I don't know, really, we're just trying to put a thumb in the eye of, of what history is. Um, we went through this a couple of years ago in Nashville with Nathan Bedford Forrest. Um, there is, he is the, not a very successful Confederate general, but he was the founder of the KKK. Um, and there was a statue to him on private property. It is the ugliest statue known to man. I swear it was made out of beaten together mufflers. And I will put a, I will send you a photo, Eric, so that you can put it in the lighter notes. Because um, I actually thought when we started to talk about taking down the Nathan Bedford memorial, um, that it was more of an insult to leave it up than to take it down because it was that ugly. And you could see it from I-65. Um, but one of the reasons that this doesn't strike the same chord with me is that this Charlottesville monument became a touch point for some very bad actors. Um, what's interesting to me is that we focused very much on what happened at Charlottesville and what happened with the Unite the Right and some of these terrible actors, neo-Nazis, um, who are proud to be neo-Nazis, by the way. Um, and then we're burning this statue, okay? We're making a change and, and giving this position at a time when you have anti-Semitic rallies on almost every Ivy League campus. So it's a really interesting dichotomy, right? We're saying this anti-Semitism, this approach is not right and we're going to do an amazing thing and we're going to burn this statue that was put up in the 1920s to try to send a message to black americans who lived in charlottesville that they were not welcome and they would continue to be um the lesser part of society um and it's being burned on the same weekend that there's you know an ivy league rally in harvard square and they're talking about killing jews so we and and really nobody's 
talking about that in the same way that they were talking about the Unite the Right rally, and both of them really had the same purpose. So um, it's really kind of from an observer status, it's one of those situations where it seems not quite correct. Um, we're talking about doing this thing about erasing history. Yeah, it's erasing history, but it's erasing a history that was designed to make people feel unwelcome. Um, and and we have we still have some of these problems that we're not acknowledging now with our with our supposedly our most intellectual people in the country. Those are different political constituencies, though. Yes, they vote for different people. They might have some of the same pathologies, but I think I think that disjunction points to sort of the political nature of much of this. Um, and political, not in a, in a very shallow sort of partisan mood affiliation sense, not in a from conviction sense. Uh, the statue of, of Nathan Bedford Forrest that Emily is talking about uh, is, to me, far less defensible than the one of Robert E. Lee. Um, I mean, we, we are talking about, as, as Emily pointed out, not even a very significant Confederate general um, with not, with not, and also not with a very good one loss record. But also the first Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, um, maybe not the best person to have a statue of, especially around an area where the Confederacy lost. It, it is all a little bit bizarre there. But even Lee, we can appreciate Lee as a general. We can appreciate Lee as a statistician the same way or a strategist, the same way we can appreciate Rommel, um, yeah. who was a Nazi general. But we don't need to erect statues to losers. Uh, and, and you get, yes, uh, and you, anybody who has seen the movie Patton knows this, of course, with the great line that I won't quote entirely. But as Patton says, you know, Rommel, I read your book. Um, you, I, I think all of that is is incredibly fair. I, I'll throw this out there for either of you to comment on, though. But, you know, the Lee as general of the Confederacy and Lee as um, uh, the, the guy doing the strategy for it um, – Go read Killer Angels, right? You know, it, it is Lee's mistakes at Gettysburg that really begin to turn the war around there. So, like, I have well, – anybody else, you know, uh, offer their perspective here. But, you know, I, I think you can say all those things that are, are necessarily true about Lee's status as, you know, a, a member of the military, um, a top graduate at West Point. You know, obviously he was – choice to lead the the army um but he led them to a loss and which you know added to the context of what emily points out here if these statues don't go up shortly after the loss uh of the civil war they go up during a period of time where the purpose is to intimidate black americans i just find the whole attempt to really like venerate Lee in the way that I'll, I'll quote here from, you know, not necessarily somebody that I take very seriously, but this guy, Joel Berry, who was at the Babylon Bee, I mean, it's a satire site. So, I mean, perhaps this is satire and it is just uh, being missed. And this is a great application of Poe's law that, you know, without obvious and uh, indication of intent, it's impossible to tell satire from sincerely held fanaticism. But here's, here's this tweet, Robert E. Lee was a far better man than any of these small, depraved mediocrities trying to erase him. You owe it to yourself to learn about Robert E. Lee and learn from him. No, I'm sorry. I don't think so. I mean, one can learn about Robert E. Lee in the same way that one can learn about Rommel or one can learn about any significant figures throughout history. But to learn from him, I'm sorry, what am I supposed to learn from him? I just do not understand this other than a bizarro right wing. If we want to talk about shallow politics, the reaction to it to me is just as bizarre and reactionary as what led to the taking down of the statue and the melting it down in its first place, which is why my inclination is to evaluate it on different grounds rather than whether or not the politics that led to it is shallow. You don't need to honor Robert E. Lee to own the libs. Yes. Is kind of my feelings on that. And I think that that's where that's come from, is that we've made it a flashpoint because somebody doesn't like it and the right people don't like it. And so we're going to become 
viciously behind uh, an iconoclasm. Um, but I don't know, or viciously behind Robert E. Lee in, in the face of iconoclasm. I think there's arguments on both sides about leaving the generals up, especially living in the South. I think it is important to the history here. And when you see them, um, you know, the, the Civil War is everywhere here. My kids play on the playground that used to be the battleground for the Battle of Nashville. Um, it's everywhere here. It's impossible to miss. It's impossible to understand that that didn't happen. We don't hide it. Um, it's not like when I landed in Frankfurt, Germany, and there's a timeline of Lufthansa's um, history and nothing happened on that timeline between 1939 and yeah, 1945. Yeah. You know, I think there's a there's a, 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 a something to be said for leaving it there to understand the history. But also, you know, for me, the stopping point is the fact that a lot of these were just raised to make people uncomfortable, um, where the statues were raised to make people uncomfortable. And now we're having an argument about whether the statues should stay. And it's really, I want to own the libs. I want to own the cons. I want to get rid of Charlottesville out of memory. Um, so it's a really deep discussion that um, I think a lot of the people involved are not having very deeply. So. I wrote a column a couple of years ago for the Detroit News, um, a similar sort of flashpoint. Um, this involved the removal of a Thomas Jefferson statue um, in, uh, in New York City, I think. But one of the things I talked about in that piece and that I think is important to remember is um, just because statues are made of winners doesn't mean those are good things either. We – but – those things can also be complicated through the course of history and memory. So if we think about, for instance, the, instance, the Arch of Titus in Rome, this commemorates the destruction of Jerusalem, among other things. And you will see on that arch pictures of Roman soldiers carrying away a menorah from the temple. This menorah may be familiar to you if you've seen any of the official sort of state seals of the state of Israel. Because, in fact, the menorah in those seals is modeled after that very menorah in the Arch of Titus. When we had the horrific attacks in Gaza earlier this month by Hamas, what did the Italian government do but blazon on light and how they do it these days with the lasers? I'm not exactly sure. But they put the Israeli flag up on that arch. We have reached a point in our history and in our memory, in which an arch that was erected to celebrate the degradation, the defeat, and the disbursement of the Jewish people can in turn be used as a way of the Jewish state itself articulating its own state symbols and the Italian government showing solidarity with Jewish people today. These things can and, in fact, do happen. And that's what a historical reconciliation looks like. And that's very complicated. And it involves memory as well as forgetting. Yeah, I, I guess I'll throw out and, and we'll use this as an opportunity to transition to our, uh, our second topic. Um, what is the best way then, in both of your opinions, to... You know, it, this is a, uh, a memorial of the general that led the South in the Civil War, which is, of course, a very important part of American history. And I do I, I don't want to come off as being entirely unsympathetic to, you know, the, it's, it's important to remember that, you know, the the elites um, you know, really from either side of that period of time, there are a, a lot of just regular people um, in the South, in the Confederacy, who were not as deeply invested in the political project of defending chattel slavery as the people who were leading the effort to fight a war for secession and the point of doing that. How do we appropriately remember that period in history, recognize its significance to different areas of this country? Um, what what is what is the way that we should be doing it? You know, I, again, like as I think I've expressed, you know, I'm, I'm sympathetic, especially in in line with what Emily pointed out, that these statues were were raised for the purpose of intimidating the same people who the Civil War fought to free. Um, so I'm just less sympathetic to their existence as a result of that. Um, but what what way should we go about? 
as we get these accusations that this is like, you know, we're trying to erase this from history. I just don't see that. I, I see plenty of opportunity to learn the history of the Civil War, of what led to it and of what happened in the aftermath of it, that these kinds of statues, again, understanding the purpose in their creation isn't necessary. So what is the appropriate way to commemorate the South's role in the Civil War in your opinions? Here, it's everywhere. These statues are in places where you cannot spit and not hit a Civil War memorial monument. (laughs) um, The reality is here in Tennessee, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, it is an indelible mark. The Civil War is an indelible mark here. Um, I do worry that the Confederacy is being eliminated from like the New Orleans, the Confederate Museum is being kind of pushed aside. Um, that's where it starts to get concerning. We have historical markers here. We have battlefields here. They're preserved. Um, there's an incredible organization that just works to preserve Civil War battlefields and improve them. Um, and the battlefields themselves are accessible. Um, you can do car trips around them. You can put your radio tunes in and, and it gives you a National Park Service tour when it's when it goes through there. Um, we have signs everywhere marking where things happened. You cannot, you cannot forget the Civil War and how it impacted the South here. Um, and of course, that's also where the statues are because the Confederates were conscripted here. They lived here. Um, I think the question is, above the Mason-Dixon line, how do you preserve the Civil War? Um, and, and for that, you know, you have Gettysburg, you have accessible battlefields north of the Mason-Dixon line, but I think we're looking at a question of how to preserve it among people who may not encounter it all the time. Um, and so the statues become immaterial here, but north of the Mason-Dixon line, that's where it becomes a question is how do you preserve it? How do you explain it? Um, especially in schools where you can't even have the Confederate flag. You cannot show the Confederate flag because people will get upset. Um, I think we have to struggle with the reality of our country and um, and and we need to keep it in schools, keep teaching it, keep offering it as an elective, keep pushing people to read books about it um, and making it real for kids because, you know, like the Holocaust, we just don't understand it's passing out of living memory. And the, the Civil War has now passed out of living memory. So it, it, I, I worry about the curriculum more in the North because I can't not encounter it. You, you mentioned uh, Georgia. I, I lived in Atlanta for a very short period of time. And right before we left, uh, along with a friend, went out to Stone Mountain, uh, which it this was a again talking about how these when the context of when these things were created uh this a carving in stone mountain of jefferson davis robert e lee and stonewall jackson that opened it was completed in 1972 and the park itself its official opening date was april 14th 1965 just so happens to be 100 years to the date of the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Um, again, so I'm, I'm, you know, I understand the ickiness around, like, the melting down of the statue and the, the spectacle that was made of it. And I don't, you know, I'm not calling for uh, Stone Mountain to be dynamited here. But I just don't find it hard to recognize the ickiness and the intention behind the creation of a lot of these things. So the challenge of monuments is a challenge of memory and is a challenge of forgetting. And it's a challenge mostly of imagination. And I like to think about how the, the model that I think of in going through not only the legacy of the Civil War, but other things that as an American do not exactly make me proud. Um, The Civil War is not the only part. Uh, You know, 
the icky parts of America's past are not identical with the Confederate parts of certain regions of this nation's past. We all have these sort of legacies. We have monuments here across the street in the, from the office. There is a fountain memorializing the participation in the Civil War of uh, folks from Kent County, Michigan. Um, it's a very cool fountain. Down on Cherry Street, a couple blocks in the other direction, there is a bust of Abraham Lincoln um, that is on city grounds, publicly available to all. So these things exist in the north, um, or at least in Kent County, Michigan. I went to Hillsdale College, which has a statue of a Union soldier. Hillsdale College had the highest uh, percentage of volunteers of any college north of the Mason-Dixon line. It was an abolitionist school that a gentleman named Frederick Douglass spoke at at least once, potentially twice. There's interesting archival research at Hillsdale College going on about this. And Frederick Douglass had a difficult time with America's Constitution. He began, like many abolitionists in his time, with the belief that the Constitution was fundamentally a pro-slavery document. Through his own sort of reflection, interaction with the works of people like Lysander Spooner, exposure to other arguments, he came to the conviction that the Constitution was in fact an anti-slavery document and that it taught better than it's new. This is the model that I like to take, um, is how can I use my memory and my imagination to bring about reconciliation to bring about progress, to derive some sort of moral core to the American experience to help enrich my own identity and serve my nation. There's a wonderful essay in the New York Review of Books recently um, where, and I forget the author, but talking about the American Revolution as an anti-slavery movement. Now, that is not to say that there were not slaveholders involved in the American Revolution that fought for American independence, but that there are certain things that we choose to remember and choose to emphasize over others. This is what we do when we remember what we had for breakfast today. This is difficult because there's a lot of pain associated with these memories for many people, but it's possible and it's the only way forward. I remember going to lunch with a group of uh, interns that we had here at Acton maybe a year or two ago. And as you walk through one of the plazas not far from our building here, there is a memorial to um, the, a Civil War memorial. And a student who was from somewhere in the Deep South, and I can't remember exactly where, commented that I've never seen one of those before, like a, a Civil War memorial. And he said, no, one for the union. And it, was, it kind of drove home the point that Emily had made about the growing up in the South, if we're living in the South, that, you know, the, uh, the difference in what one will see memorialized in, in statuary. Even in Chicago. Yes. Um, we are growing up at, well, I didn't grow up in Chicago, but living in Chicago for an extended period of time um, you realize that the melting pot of people who came here also makes this very difficult, right? So I'm Italian. Um, we have statues of Columbus that we erected all over the country in the 1920s. And we erected them because the Ku Klux Klan was lynching Italians. And there was all of this pushback on immigration coming um, following the First World War, Um and Italians were desperate to be like, please just recognize that we founded America and we love America. Stop stringing us up. Um, those are now coming down because Columbus is a symbol of white oppression now. A colonizer. Italians, yeah. A colonizer. Even when Italians came here, we weren't really considered white. So times change, peoples change. But then once they pulled the statue of Columbus down in Chicago, there remains a statue and a street for Balbo, who was Mussolini's right-hand man in the Second World War and an icon of fascism. And that stays there. People don't understand it. They don't know what it is. It's just this, you know, it's a, a little statue between um, the football stadium and the field museum. Um, 
and nobody goes after it. And that is the case of people just not knowing who Balboa is um, and walking right past a monument to fascism in the center of Chicago. So it it is very strange when you have this melting pot of people and people who lived forever in the deep south and people who came to the north for industrialization um, and tangling with all of these cultural and ethnic backgrounds um, and trying to give everyone the sense of human dignity that they deserve. But there is only one native population in the United States and it's not very big. So um, <laughs> we will probably be having these conversations until the end of time as our statues deteriorate and we raise new ones, you know, to Obama and whomever. Um, I mean, it, it, it's it, it's going to be complicated here because we just we come from everywhere and, and we fight for everything. <laughs> I will apologize ahead of time to our listeners who get annoyed by dialogue about X, formerly known as Twitter. Uh, but certainly a lot of people were uh, getting a lot of engagement in their commentary on the Robert E. Lee story that we just discussed. Uh, which brings us to a tweet from Elon Musk, who, of course, is the proprietor of the website currently known as X, formerly known as Twitter, that I will read to you, as well as the follow-up tweet, which I guess isn't a tweet anymore. I guess it's called a post now, but jeez. Oh, boy. Making a slight change to creator monetization. So for people who do not know about this, um, if you get enough... Uh, views enough engagement as a creator on this platform, you can be paid a portion of the ad revenue that is derived off of your post. If you scroll down a couple uh, tweets into the replies, you will typically see an advertisement. For instance, I'm looking at one right here for Karma Shopping uh, that is in this tweet by Elon Musk. Uh, making a slight change to creator monetization, any posts that are corrected by community notes become ineligible for revenue share. The idea is to maximize the incentive for accuracy over sensationalism. And then the follow-up to that, worth, and I don't know why in, uh, oh, I get why, worth, quote, noting that any attempts to weaponize community notes to demonetize people will be immediately obvious because all code and data is open source. So, I found this a little bit fascinating because there's some interesting economic incentive stuff that is going on here. Uh, as I mentioned last week, and as Dan, you pointed out, that the community notes thing actually predates uh, Elon Musk's acquisition of the platform. But it has certainly become more of a feature of it over time. And anybody who engages on this platform on a regular basis, I think, will see that it has done a lot of good. You can find out pretty quickly if what you are reading is absolute nonsense uh, because in very much in a similar way to how editors of Wikipedia are very protective of the content on there, the people who are uh, in this community that add the community notes are also quite protective of their prerogative there. Um, but I, I think this is this is interesting because there are obviously to me people – who tweet the most incendiary possible things that don't necessarily reflect reality in any meaningful way for the purpose of engagement farming. Now, they're, they're the kind of innocent forms of engagement far farming, like looking like the Eric Alpers of the world who just like post things about like, you know, what's the greatest song from the 1970s or what's the greatest song by Led Zeppelin that gets people to answer and all of that. It's a pretty innocent form of engagement farming. But there are definitely people who do it in a much more nefarious way. And one of the people who uh, is responsible for getting the some one of the largest, if not the most views of anybody on Twitter is this person uh, named Jackson Hinkle, uh, who widely is believed to be a paid stooge of the Kremlin. He dates Miss Russia. Um, and while I have never seen any evidence that he is being paid by the Kremlin to be a stooge for them, I don't know if he was, how any of his tweets would be any different. So I don't know quite what to make of all of that, other than I do think it's interesting that this person who gets so much of this engagement and attention on this platform is often doing it. Well, there's a post from him just the other day claiming all of these things that had been reported by the uh, newspaper Haaretz about what is going on in the Israel Gaza war. And Haaretz itself corrected, 
you know, quote tweeted it and said, like, none of this is true. None of this reflects our reporting on this whatsoever. And the original tweet has millions of views and will derive tons of revenue for him and a fraction of it in terms of the correction uh, for what Haretz said here. So uh, what do you think of this change in all of this? And I, I, like I said, I'm particularly interested in the economic incentives that exist around this right now. We talk so much about fighting disinformation. You know, I don't think disinformation reporting is a very good way to go about that, especially when we look at the way that it's cashed out over the last, you know, eight to 10 years. Um, is this a good way to attempt to establish for people that the things they are seeing on social media may not be accurate and to try to punish in some sense people who are using things that are just completely untrue for their own personal benefit? It was news to me that there was gold in them there, Cheech and Chong gummies <laughs> advertising <laughs> revenue, but evidently it's enough to you know, incentivize people to lie and uh, make incendiary statements on Twitter. Uh, people did those things long before there was any revenue sharing, long before you had any of that sweet, sweet Cheech and Chong gummy money. You had, uh, you know, folks who were trolls. Um, trolling is its own reward uh, in some cases. Um, you also have people who derive, may derive monetary benefit. In other indirect ways, whether that be from the Kremlin or from, uh, you know, more innocent sources, um, people get paid to generate views and engagement. Um, this is a problem. Um, it is. It is. It is a problem not only for X, but it's a problem for the internet itself. Um, what you have with this idea of trying to, you know, has there been fuel put on the fire by this monetization? Maybe, but I think, I think all the incentives exist uh, without that. Um, you will, however, because of the way the internet operates and the way that social media operates, um, you have people that hate people online. And if you tell people that, yes, you know, if you contribute to a community note and debunking someone that you will hurt them financially, that's an incentive for those people to operate as well. Um, and you have, you know, listen, you know, you know, the fable of bees, you know, private vices may in some case lead to public advantage, but I'm ill at ease with taking what you see as a sort of insidious set of incentives for bad actors and then potentially empowering other bad actors to act on their resentment in order to balance that. There are other ways that market forces can, can, can work to arrive at truth rather than sort of jacking up the internet of beefs. I mean, I am a recipient of Twitter X money. <laughs> um, and I do often get it for, I get the attention for um, debunking. And I am a member of the, whatever Truth and Safety Squad puts up the community notes now, um, as of last week. <laughs> um, so it is, it's actually kind of a fun exercise, but it, the thing is that the gaming of the system goes much deeper than just the monetization of X or the monetization of Twitter. Um, people like Jackson Hinkle are paid. Um, and then there are server farms and bot farms that are paid to amplify people like Jackson Hinkle. So there's an entire operation of disinformation that gets pressed. And we don't really talk about it a lot. Um, with Twitter, it's a little more obvious because there's the blue checks and you pay for the blue checks. And then you see that people get money for being weird. Um <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, it's true. That's just a perfect description. True. Yeah, they get money. Yeah. And um, at some point, the blue check just it balances out with the 40 bucks I get a week or something with, to, to be a jerk on Twitter. Um, but then you go to places like TikTok. And this has changed pretty dramatically. TikTok is obviously a PSYOP operation of the Chinese government. 
Um, and it's not super noticeable all the time. Most of the time when I go on TikTok, I get content from other moms of young children. I get cooking recipes. Um, TikTok recently decided that I was a labor and delivery nurse. So it's just putting so much medical content into my feed. That checks uh, out. It's an al- Yeah, right? <laughs> Obviously. Um, so the, the algorithm is very good. But even, even though I have no connection at all other than to support um, journalism on what has happened in Israel, I'm clearly, if you go on my Twitter feed, I clearly have a point of view on the subject. Um, I get content that is very pro-Palestinian, in some cases pro-Hamas. I get live feeds of the tunnels. Um, I get all sorts of misinformation, disinformation amplified into my feed. And I have never encountered foreign policy on TikTok before. And that is entirely because there's these systems are being gamed at a monetary and governmental level. Um And so Jackson Hinkle is really interesting because he actually does appear to be a paid stooge. He's openly a communist. He says he's a communist. If you scratch the surface of anyone who wanders into my replies telling me how great Hamas is, you will wander over to their profile and see that they have retweeted Jackson Hinkle. Um, And so it's more than just the blue check. It's more than just the monetization. It it, It is an actual psyop on the part of places like Russia and China to make sure that Americans are divided on this issue. I want to move to our final topic now. I'm going to read here from a piece in The Pillar. Uh, Synod Report Proposes Ways to Foster Synodal Church. I'll give you a little bit of the beginning of this article here that, of course, we will put into the show notes. The 42-page synthesis report, a synodal church in mission, summarized discussions at the first session of the Ordinary General Assembly of Synod Synod of Bishops as the Synod on Synodality is formally known. The second and conclusive session will be held at the Vatican in October 2024. According to a voting schema issued October 28th, All sections of the report gained the two-thirds majority of votes necessary for inclusion in the document. A draft text, a copy of which was obtained by the pillar, reportedly uh, prompted more than a thousand requests for amendments. The more than 400 participants who sat at roundtables in the Vatican's uh, um, uh, Paul VI Hall Um, Rather than in the customary new synodal hall during the largely closed door event included over 300 voting members, a significant proportion of whom were non-bishops. The nearly 21,000-word report, released initially only in Italian, made detailed proposals to promote what it called, quote, the style of synodality throughout the church. Now, I am going to let Emily explain to um, all of us, by which I mean me— what all of that means, although I just do want to take the opportunity to point out here that what a lot of us kind of thought uh, the outcome of, or at least what the the takeaway was going to be from the Synod on Synodality uh, was basically explicitly stated by uh, Cardinal Chupich uh, in this question that he received, what is your overall take on the synthesis document? And his answer was, the document is not as important as the experience we had. So he literally went, the synod is just the friends we made along the way. I told you guys that that's (laughs) (laughs) Emily nailed it. I predicted it from the beginning. Uh, well, we had a couple of things that sort of went off the rails. The Synod on Synodality um, got way overshadowed by what happened with Father Rupnik, who is a Yes, can you explain that, please, for, for our listeners? So Father Rupnik uh, is a Jesuit priest, no longer a Jesuit Former priest. Jesuit. He was, kicked, he was kicked out of the Jesuit order. Um, years and years ago, he was placed at the head of a convent in Slovenia, um, in Europe, and the nun he he is documented by the nuns as having abused them um, on a number of levels, emotionally, spiritually, sexually. Um, he he's just not a great guy. Um, and then it turns out he was defrocked, or I'm sorry, he was excommunicated briefly. He was never laicized. He was excommunicated briefly. Then under Francis's pontificate, he was brought back. 
um, into the church. He has never made a formal apology. He has never apologized to his victims. And the Vatican has really not acknowledged the victims. Um, and you can see his art anywhere. It's very ugly and dead-eyed. Um, but used gratuitously across the Vatican websites, even the Knights of Columbus um, and some of their stuff. Back from when he was still a priest in good standing, he is seen as this monumental postmodern um, artist. Um, but over the week, um, he was not only brought back into the fold lovingly, but he was allowed to return to ministry. So he is now part of a diocese, an active ministry in Slovenia. And this caused outcry among all section segments of the church from the left to the right. Um, this was just an absolute disaster to happen during the synod. Um, and it kind of overshadowed the synod, um, which by the time we got even to the Rupnik affair had sort of passed out of interest for most people because nothing was really happening. Um, this document that came out, there are a lot of changes that were proposed in this document. Um, everything from making um, your typical pastoral minister, um, usually, you know, an elderly lady who takes care of the church, recognizing them more formally. Um, it continues to press the idea of women deacons. Um, it continues to press the idea of power being um, consolidated at a papal level um, uh, towards a listening church and structures of participation. Um, there are a lot of issues that are addressed in this document. However, there are also a lot of no votes for this document. <laughs> this document will sit out there. Um, it doesn't say much of anything. No major changes were made. The idea of a female priesthood was dismissed. The idea of a female diaconate was passed on to a ordinate level, which probably won't come up any longer. Um, the issues of same-sex marriage and the potential of blessing same-sex marriages themselves, not the two people in a same-sex marriage, um, that was not dealt with. Um, it was dealt with, that particular issue was dealt more in the context of divorced and remarried Catholics. Um, and so while we are talking about the Synod and the end of the Synod, um, we are mostly talking about the future of synodality going back to the parish level. And now people get to discuss this 12,000 word document and try to implement it at the parish level, which is just a whole new can of worms. Get to take it to the parish level where we can make some friends along the way, Dan. You may find yourself living in Pope Paul VI audience hall. You may find yourself in the Synod of Synodality. And you may find yourself behind the wheel of Fazanelli's La Resiection. And you may find yourself in a listening mood with the voice of minorities, the discarded, and the excluded. And you may ask yourself, well, how did I get here? <laughs> Same as it ever was, same as, as it, it ever was. was, same as it ever was. There have been many battles throughout the church's history about the church's structure. Those battles were settled decisively in the late 19th century at a council we call Vatican I, in which the Pope was granted universal, was granted or recognized to possess, depending on one's perspective, universal ordinary jurisdiction of the church. This is why many people are very upset about not only the actions of Father Rupnik, but the Vatican's response, because the Pope has universal ordinary jurisdiction over the church. The reality of it is, for good or for ill, for better or for worse, the buck stops with the Pope. I don't understand. And there was an Orthodox participant in the Synod who pointed this out as, A, you know, how you do synodality is you have a synod of bishops and they talk about things and they have a council or some sort of lesser body. And um, 
and that's open-ended and that's freewheeling. And most of the time it doesn't happen because it's very difficult to get people to agree on anything, let alone bishops. What the synod is seems to be a sort of a let's pretend exercise. Let's pretend that the Pope does not have universal ordinary jurisdiction over the church. And let's have an exercise in brainstorming, fellowship, whatever. Brainstorming and fellowship are great, but this is not how the church is run. And I think it is a mistake if we take it thinking that it is. I yeah, think I think it's a distraction to that idea. Yeah, it's a it's kind of lip service to that idea because really this this document came out and your average catholic in the pew is going to look at it and be like we didn't talk about this at our parish level. We didn't talk about the code of canon law and whether it needs to be changed at the parish level. We didn't talk about um we didn't talk about all of these things. Um and honestly, they don't impact us. And then you have a press conference at the Vatican about the Synod where one of the members says, you know, you uh, abuse, clerical abuse was not really high on our list of things to discuss at the Synod. And really, I, I would venture if you ask a lot of people who have left the Catholic Church over the last 20 years, what their top problem with the Catholic Church might be, then it's probably going to be abuse. And then in the middle of the synod, you have this sort of ideal clericalism that happens, right? We're going to give somebody back his faculties who we believe to be a known abuser. Um, this synod kind of was trying to give the impression that people at the bottom were giving instruction to the people at the top. But there were maybe 20 or 30 people there who were normal, as normal as you can be and still attend a synod. Um, a lot of the people who were involved were people who have been involved since the 1960s, and they're still discussing the same things they were discussing in the 1960s. And then my generation that grew up with being taught by them now have some of those ideas and we think they're normal. Um, so it, it's just an odd sort of gathering of people, because I don't think anyone who is really at the margins, who is really in the pews, who is sitting in church and mass every Sunday is going to really resonate with much of what's in this synod document. Um, it just sort of rehashes about the last 40 years of people's concerns with the church based on their own sort of individualized fiefdoms. So it's, it's a very interesting thing to see a document aimed at bringing people back into the church, not really having much to do with anybody at the parish level. It's going to continue. <laughs> Um, this is the strange thing to me is this is like a process. I mean, this is the other thing is it's not, you know, traditionally in the history of the church, councils are convened, they have an agenda and they end. Um, sometimes it takes them a long, long time to end, but like they end, this seems more like a sort of strange parallel bureaucracy that doesn't have power, that doesn't really have a fixed constituency. It's not just bishops. It's not just even, I don't know what it is. It is inscrutable. Um, I have never seen something that has had so much written about it that is still fundamentally so opaque. Let's call it a wrap there. Thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look right now in the show notes for a link where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind or just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this program. Thanks to Dan. Thanks to Emily. For the Acton Institute, I'm Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week. Same as it ever was. 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 Letting the days go by. Letting the water hold me down. Letting the days go by.
I want to thank you for listening. I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate right now to the show notes for this episode, where you are going to find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you listen to find podcasts. And I'm going to say that sentence again because I put it in the past tense for some reason. I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, thank, blah, boy, it's not my morning. <laughs>